If you've ever tried to get your client's Stripe, Square, or PayPal transactions into QuickBooks or Xero, you've probably pulled your hair out a few times trying to get the income and fees recorded correctly so the deposit amounts match the bank statement. Did you know you could be using Cinder to automatically do this for you? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Cinder, later in this episode. So it did. I, I think I predicted last week. I was like, "Oh, they're just going to change the date right, right <laughs> before the weekend starts." But they didn't. They did not. And we have confirmation now. The Treasury Department and the IRS have said they are not going to extend tax day a second time. So there's no getting around it. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Clockshark. Back in October of 2013, I became Clockchart's first Twitter follower. Today, Clockchart has grown to a highly rated and very much loved time tracking app that is now used by over 5,000 small businesses globally. With features like crew tracking, scheduling, overtime notifications, routes, geofencing locations, job costing, budgeting, and reporting, Clockchart has built a robust mobile time tracking app to handle the unique challenges that face your mobile workforce clients. Their technology has been helpful as their clients work through the COVID-19 pandemic. Your clients will need accurate records of their expenses and losses, and technology like Clockchart helps. With Clockchart, your clients can keep accurate records like paid time off and other important data to provide the necessary proof for CARES and FFCRA Act benefits. This lets them get straight back to work without too much disruption after the pandemic has passed. Clockchart's standard plan is just $6 a month per employee. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clockchart. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. As firms everywhere are positioning themselves to work remotely, BQE Software is committed to supporting you and your employees during this critical time. BQE's core products operate 100% on a native cloud platform that's uniquely able to help you in your efforts to embrace remote work while maintaining your productivity. In response to the impact that COVID-19 has had on your firm and your clients' businesses, the team at BQE has let us know that the Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners will now receive three months of BQE Core for free with an annual subscription package purchased on or before September 30th, 2020. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash core. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-O-R-E. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. How was your 4th of July, David? Uh, hot. It's very, very, very hot. <laughs> Did last night uh, go to the one hotel and met somebody for drinks. The hotel was at 50% capacity. Uh-huh. And you had to serve yourself. You had to go and get drinks from the bar and you had to bust your own table. But it was there was nobody around us for 30 feet. So if I would have known, I would have got a room at the hotel and just stayed there the whole weekend. What did you call it? The One Hotel? Oh, no. Uh, at a, we went to a hotel. Oh, to a hotel. Got it. To a hotel. Yeah. I'm in my new place in Scottsdale. And I found out on 4th of July that Westworld, which is the events space in North Scottsdale where they have horse shows and stuff, was doing fireworks. And we were able to watch the fireworks from our house. It's really oh, nice. Really cool. Yeah. You don't have to. Didn't have to go anywhere. And it's a good thing we could watch them from inside because it was like 110 degrees. So it was really nice to just kind of decompress and not look at my email for a day. But I kept thinking about all of our friends in the tax world who are struggling because they didn't get to take a three-day weekend because the tax deadline is now on the 15th, July 15th. I've got some discussion about the AICPA and their reasoning for not 
advocating to move the July 15th date after previously saying it should be October 15th. The logic there is a little bit interesting. We'll talk about that. Uh, I've got follow-up on Wirecard, the Ernst & Young audit that apparently did not detect $2 billion in money that was missing. Yeah, it's some Wirecard as well. IRS news, appropriate for tax day coming up. Um, the IRS is ha- struggling right now due to coronavirus and just lack of funding. And PPP, of course, is still in the news. That got extended. That's that's uh, what I've got on my plate. How about you? Similar stuff. I got Wirecard in here. I got PPP, um, the IRS and the lack of audits. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's happening, some of that. There's a couple tiebacks to some old things. So remember, we're talking about a cash, right? An acceptance of cash. Well, that's resurfacing again because now, you know, with COVID, now businesses are kind of like, hey, even more reasons not to take cash. And so, right, this, right. Uh, the bills that are forced you to take cash are coming up. And we got some reviews. We did get reviews. Want me to read the first one? Yeah, go for it. All right. So, this review was on Podchaser. This is from Joel at RN, which I'm assuming is Joel at Right Networks. And this is a five-star review. I've become a regular listener and enjoy the consolidated reporting and analysis of the news and events in the accounting industry. But I was compelled to write this review because Blake's take on the industry's recent words about racial reform and equity in the last episode really landed for me. We need to move beyond just words and committees with recommendations to tangible plans with metrics and performance incentives, which drive actual measurable change. It will take time, but we'll have an opportunity to begin now. Great work, Blake and David. Joel. Oh, thank you, Joel. This is our second review. The Cloud Accounting Podcast is my number one source for current real-world information and ideas on the leading edge of new and evolving accounting profession. Blake and David provide hands-on practical insights with every edition. Informative, entertaining, educational, humorous, authentic, sobering, witty, insightful, their pragmatic perspectives cut through all the technical and theoretical minutiae and all the marketing noise and hyperbole. It's easy and free to subscribe. I listen at my convenience and can't wait for each post. CAP is a must for all accounting professionals who want to stay current on the rapid pace of change at the intersection of the cloud and accounting. Thank you, Blake and David, for this invaluable and unique resource. You've helped me and my firm in our journey to the future of cloud accounting and CFO advisory services. So that's Ronaldo Ariano. He's a CPA, PFS, and CGMA. Thank you, Ronaldo. Yeah, I mean, that's what we try to do, right? He's talking about like we're just plowing through the minutia. And all the noise that's out there and try to like bring what's valuable and sift through it. So let's talk about tax day. It's coming up, right? So it did. I I think I predicted last week. I was like, oh, they're just going to change the date right right (laughs) before the weekend starts. But they didn't. They did not. And we have confirmation now the Treasury Department and the IRS have said they are not going to extend tax day a second time. So there's no getting around it. July 15th is the deadline. Although, of course, you can still extend to October 15th. And the AICPA decided somewhat controversially not to advocate to extend the tax deadline any longer, which is interesting because back in March, during the whole coronavirus uh, spin up, the AICPA did advocate to move the deadline to October 15th. Uh, And they put out a couple of blog posts about their reasoning. They did a survey, apparently, at the end of May and I, I never got this survey. I don't know who they surveyed or it's not really clear to me. And they didn't release the specific details of the survey. But they You mean like how many people they who responded to it or took it? Did they release that type of a number? It just says survey deployed at the end of May that asked members two questions. 
Number one, based on the current COVID-19 environment and the impact on your tax practice, do you anticipate being able to file returns or extensions for your clients by the July 15th deadline? And the second question is, do you believe the IRS should automatically extend the July 15th filing and payment deadline? And they received over a thousand comments. Doesn't say if that's a thousand people who took the survey. Don't know. Uh, like I said, I didn't. I didn't get the survey. At least I didn't see it. But what's interesting is that although the majority of respondents said they would be able to file returns or extensions on behalf of their clients by the July fifteenth due date, a plurality of members wanted the IRS to move the July fifteenth due date to October fifteenth. Some members suggested other dates. So pl- plurality means it wasn't a majority, but the greatest percentage of respondents wanted the deadline moved. But the AICPA tax committee decided not to recommend that. And there's some reasons for, some against. So just to summarize, so most people were saying, yeah, let's move it. The largest, yeah, a plurality, right? The largest group said, let's move it. And then the tax committee decided not to make that recommendation and listed their reasoning. There's a tweet from Logan Graf CPA. He's at Logan Graf Tax, and he highlighted the reasons that the AICPA gave for moving it and then for not moving it. And he said uh, that the reasons, most of the reasons for not changing the deadline were stuff like our clients are going to procrastinate. We don't want these tax returns hanging over our head all year. Some clients wait until the last minute. Changing the due date is confusing for clients. And he says, well, those are things that we can control, right? We can explain to our clients what they need to do and, and we can you know, manage our work, right? And then he highlights the reasons for moving the deadline, which is stuff like half the staff are teaching their children and working at the same time. Fear of the illness on my part, as well as my family and clients, has made the process much longer and not as efficient. There are investment reports, K-1s, and revised 1099s that are not available. So, he highlights those, and he says, well, those are not things that we can't control. So, why are we not advocating to move the deadline? Because, you know, it's a lot of things that are out of our control, especially having kids at home. Like, that's <laughs> how do you how do you do tax season from your home office when you got, like, your whole family there? Um, I, I just well, that's an, that could be a reason to not move the deadline because like, like kids are not going back to school. Apparently, it's starting to, to be very clear about this, which means it's not going to be any better doing taxes in October than it is doing in tax taxes in July. So this wasn't actually I don't think this was listed in the blog post about the reasoning for not moving the deadline. But I did hear some speculation that the big reason managing partners wouldn't want to move the deadline is that they collect payment from clients when they file returns. So if they don't file the returns, if the deadline doesn't stick and it gets extended again, then clients aren't going to turn in their paperwork and the firm is not going to be able to collect the cash. So it's a cash flow problem. But that's based on the way they're billing their clients. You know, So this is a revenue play and it's not a like I can kind of see one argument of not moving it, and uh, there's they obviously talk about that in the article I saw. The uh, so the AOCP is vice president of taxation, Edward Carl. He said that you know it's the the realities of COVID's uncertainty, and I kind of buy into that a little bit because if let's just say there's another crazy version of PPP that comes out three months from now because COVID's still not going away, right. like when. This will just never, never end. It's almost like, okay, just rip the bandaid off. Let's try to get taxes done on this deadline. If you can't, extend the people that need to be extended because chances are – I don't know. It's probably not even chances. It's probably a very high uh, possibility 
accounts are going to be busy with a bunch of headache, COVID-related stimulus work again. Um, if it's not the forgiveness stuff, it's going to be some new things. So let's talk about Wirecard. Some interesting developments this week. You know, Wirecard filed for insolvency, the German equivalent of bankruptcy, last week or the week before that. And now prosecutors, uh, police officers are searching their offices. I, I don't think they're trying to find the $2 billion. I think we're, we're kind of realizing that didn't ever exist. <laughs> they're trying to find a trail. Um, and in particular, uh, one challenge is that Wirecard's COO, Jan Marsalek, has disappeared. He is on the lam. He stopped responding to messages from colleagues when the company ran into trouble around June 18th on the day that Wirecard revealed that $2 billion was missing. This guy, Jan Marsalek, is 40 years old, and he joined the company at age 20 as a payment systems project manager and ended up basically running a huge chunk of the company. Now, we're not sure exactly where he is, but and immigration records in the Philippines cropped up that appeared to show him entering the country on June 23rd and then departing the following day for China. But the Philippines Justice Secretary said that those were faked records and he didn't actually enter the country. And Kind of like the make statements were faked. <laughs> yeah. So, a theory is that Marsalek had these immigration records entered to figure out if there was an international warrant out for his arrest, an Interpol uh, arrest warrant so that he could then know wherever else he's going, you know, if he'll be safe. And apparently he is, he's somewhere safe because he texted a friend on the encrypted messaging app, telegram saying that he's now in a safe place. Nobody knows where that is. So uh, some kind of spy drama going on with Wirecard. There. They're going to catch up to him, right? I, I don't know. I mean, so there's a question as to whether the $2 billion ever existed, but maybe some of it did exist. And this guy, you know, has it squirreled away somewhere. He's also big in the cryptocurrency world. So maybe he's got like crypto that he can live off of. Uh, maybe he's got another identity. Or, or he's moved some of yeah. the money into cryptos. <laughs> yeah. So as a shelter. So while the police are searching for Jan Marsalek, the spotlight is on Ernst & Young now as the auditor that signed off on Wirecard's financial statements for three years uh, before this was finally revealed. You know, they, they, they gave Wirecard an unqualified audit for years 2016 through 2019 while these accounts were supposed to exist. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Like, um, we talked a little bit last episode about exactly what happened here, and we have a little bit more information about that now. So, the $2 billion, right? It was supposed to be in the Philippines, but not in normal bank accounts. Apparently, these are trusty controlled accounts. It's because this is part of a business where Wirecard used third-party partners to process payments for it in markets where it didn't have licenses to process payments. And so Wirecard's revenue from those businesses would be deposited in trust accounts rather than paid straight to Wirecard. And the rationale for that, according to Wirecard in past years, was that the money had to be kept in trusty accounts as a form of risk management. The cash would be available to provide refunds and chargebacks to customers for things such as canceled airline tickets or disputed charges. But what got weird about that is that the amount in those accounts became so large. It's equivalent to more than a quarter of the total group revenue for Wirecard in the years 2016 through 2019. A quarter of all of their revenue. This is starting to see, yeah, somebody figured out like a way to pretend that money was there and they were pulling it out. 
So maybe it started small, right? And then it just sort of ballooned over time because because the amount is just way too big from a risk management perspective. Like it doesn't make sense. There's no way they would ever have that many chargebacks. And so it's. But I mean, that's what happened with the Michael Mann and the My Payroll HR. With right. That, that went on, right? It would start small, small, small. Then eventually it was like, I just got to move the entire payroll to my own bank account. So the, the entire run. You know, Ernst and Young has said, oh, this isn't our fault, that this was like a sophisticated fraud that many people at Wirecard participated in. Well, well, you know, this is like pretty simple because it was KPMG that came in to do a special audit after investors raised concerns. And, you know, they figured it out pretty quickly, right? Because they did the bank confirmations and then the bank said, oh, we don't actually have any accounts for Wirecard. So I'm thinking maybe this started small and then it kind of spiraled. And the thing is, it's this damning for Ernst Young is that there's emails that the Wall Street Journal says it saw that say that the auditor had questions about this arrangement as early as 2016. So they were asking questions, but they never like got to the bottom of it. Well, and I have an article where the uh, German regulator, BA Finn, mm-hmm. BA Finn, uh, capital B, capital F, whistleblowers reported to them. And so there was oversight failure. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot more going on than just these two bank accounts, mm-hmm. possibly. We're going to find out as, as it goes. And then uh, EY, they got added to a class action uh, lawsuit against Wirecard uh, on Tuesday. And But essentially, the, this article does talk about how this is really a systemic problem. Boffin has already come under fire after it took more than a year to report Wirecard for suspected market manipulation following a tip-off from a whistleblower about irregularities at the payments company. Boffin's chief, Felix Hufeld, issued an apology saying that it would share responsibility for the quote-unquote complete disaster at Wirecard because it didn't do a good enough job as a regulator. Like, isn't that their only job and role? Like, if a whistleblower alerts them with an irregularity, as a regulator, you're supposed to investigate irregularities. And <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's it, like, there's just a lot of finger point, pointing going on. Well, and I, I, I've read stories about how they did the opposite, where there would be these investors complaining that it doesn't add up. And then uh, the regulator, Boffin, whatever they're called, they would go after the investors instead of Wirecard. In the UK, so they have the Financial Reporting Council, mm-hmm. and a bunch of former partners from the big four firms sit on the committees at that council. And so it's the same problems we're seeing. You know, the, the governing boards and these regulators are made up of people in the f- who used to work for those firms. Right. And they're why are those firms going to go after their buddies? Yeah. No, that makes sense. Especially if they might get a job there three years from now again as a partner or something. So the whole thing is just there's a lot of finger pointing going on. And, and I, I think this Wirecard thing is going to be a much bigger fraud than just these two accounts. It's starting to shape up that way. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cinder. If you've ever tried to get your client's Stripe, Square, or PayPal transactions into QuickBooks or Zero, you've probably pulled your hair out a few times trying to get the income and fees recorded correctly so the deposit amounts match the bank statements so you can reconcile. Cinder automatically and accurately categorizes and posts these transactions into the accounting system. Cinder can sync all the necessary details like inventory items, tax, shipping, discounts, classes, locations, and even correctly handles the processor fees. With tools like duplicate detector and rollback functions, you can rest assured your client's books will never get messed up because you can undo and restore any sync data with literally one click. If you need support from Cinder, they offer free help using your favorite means of communication, be it chat, email, or phone. 
Try out Cinder for free. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Cinder. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-Y-N-D-E-R. Cinder, smart finance management for online businesses. So uh, it wasn't just the German entity that had problems. The Wirecard has a US and a UK entity. Now, the, the US entity is pretty much separate and just sharing the name. They don't really do the same thing that Wirecard does in Germany. So they, they're actually okay. They're looking for a buyer right now. The UK entity, very similar situation, although because of the problems in Germany, the UK regulators shut down Wirecard in the UK for uh, from like Friday to Monday. And Wirecard in the UK like processes payments for a bunch of fintechs. So it actually stopped people from being able to access their money at these challenger banks such as Curve, Pocket, and Anna, A-N-N-A. These are you know apps that are banks, basically, totally shut off. Um, now, most of these customers don't use it as their main bank account. Uh, it's a good reason not to. The regulation is very different. And so there are calls now, or discuss, there's, there's been, some folks have been calling for you know, more regulation of payment processors, similar to banks. And so, so you're talking about the tech companies, yeah. right? So SoftBank, so this is uh, the investors, this is the people that invested in WeWork, and we've talked about the other uh, flopped investments they've been having, right? They've been having a lot of problems, mm-hmm. uh, massive, massive investments, right? So they actually, sh- they, had, they struck a billion-dollar investment deal with Wirecard. Oh, when was that? Uh, in April of 2019. And now SoftBank wants out. But essentially, a part of that deal, the agreement was for Wirecard to become affiliated as the digital payments provider for all the companies in SoftBank's base of tech firms. I feel like... And for SoftBank to help Wirecard expand in Japan and South Korea. Wow. I, I feel like SoftBank so, is just going to end up co- collapsing, right? Like they've made so many of these terrible investments. Yeah. They're, they're really tied with just so many questionable deals at this yeah. point. Um, and now they're trying to separate themselves from this. Right. Um, it just <laughs> it continues on. So, we talk about the challenges the IRS is facing? Yeah. We, the, the coronavirus has created massive problems for the IRS because so much of what they do is still in the office. It's not in the cloud. And particularly mail, right? Opening mail is something that has to be done in close quarters generally. And you can't do it when you're at home. I think we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Yeah. So that's actually been one of the big problems with audits. Corporate audits fell 71% this spring compared with the same time period a year ago. This is a story in accounting today. And, and it turns out that like, you know, part of the problem isn't just, you know, people working at home. Um, it's, it's that a lot of this correspondence for audits is done via mail. And so all of the audits got paused that could be the only audits that went forward were those where the statute of limitations would make them unable to recover any funds. So, you know, they're gonna have a lot of catch up to do. But the problem is like, you know, they're not very well funded. The IRS has been facing budget cuts for a long time. And they seem to have a problem with talent. There's another story this week. The headline is IRS wasting millions on audits with no results. This is another watchdog report. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration said in a report released on Thursday that almost half of the audits on large companies from fiscal years 2016 through 2018 resulted in the IRS concluding that no additional tax was due. In other words, they wasted almost $23 million auditing tax returns that resulted in no additional revenue for the federal government. 
And they well, also- Of course. Do you know why, right? Why is that? Basically, if you have a million, if you have income of a million dollar or more, there's less than a 1% chance you'll get audited, right? The IRS will call you. Yeah. Well, that's on the individual side. Individuals. But see, so in total, the IRS has audited about 0.15% of individual returns in 2018. But- People who claimed earned income tax credit, which basically is low income earners, yeah. those are getting audited at um, 0.6%. 0.6%, so four times greater. Yeah. And that's why, so if they audit those ones, because they're kind of easy, they're just like, there's no return there except for the income tax credit. Right. They're easy to audit, but it's not going to produce any revenue unless you know somebody was fraudulent at that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It produces revenue if somebody's claiming it wrongly. Because then you can claw it back. But, and what is that? Twenty four hundred bucks? Like, or yeah. what's that? Sixty two hundred bucks? Like, <laughs> I, I think the point you make is valid, which is that it's easy, and these corporate audits are hard. And you know, clearly, the IRS is not doing a very good job of choosing which companies to audit. Well, as it goes up, right? Yeah. As the the higher the return goes up, the less chance it gets audited. The less chance it gets audited, and the less chance there is a, a tax due. And I, I think it's it's because the returns are complex. So the IRS, you know, has been losing talented people and not replacing them. So they don't have the expertise to audit those complex returns and to argue with the talented people who are on the other side, who are representing the, the taxpayers. The other problem is they're taking doing more returns than ever. So in 2010, they uh, received 230 million returns. And they employed 13, almost 14,000 agents. Now, in 2019, they had 253 million returns. So, you're talking 30 million more returns. And now, they're at about 8,500 agents. Wow. So, it's, it's and so, this gets funded. I, I don't know. And, and I, again, I think we talked about this in the show. Like, this is your profit center. Like, you would double down on this. If, you had a, if this was a business, yeah. you would double down on your profit, your revenue uh, producing agency. Yeah, I think the number that you mentioned at the beginning of that story is, we just got to mention it again. If you earn between a million and $5 million, your chance of getting audited for tax year 2018 was 0.05%. So, a 20th of a percent. That's amazing. And if you earned over $10 million, then it's 0.03%. But there's good news, right? So, we talked about the earned income tax credit. We've talked about racism and taxes and things like this. So, the uh, IRS chief, he's uh, IRS commissioner Charles Reddig, said Tuesday that he would work with Congress now to examine any ways the tax code contributes to racial wealth disparities. Hmm. There's no um, actual data in it in that statement. He did say that he's a huge proponent of inclusiveness and diversity. He goes on to say, I think you're possibly aware of the fact that I'm the first commissioner whose spouse came from a country as a refugee. And I understand how people are treated in different arenas and we're all in. Firstly, there's no, there's no, um, other than him committing to doing it, there's not a lot what he's going to do. He just, he's committing to do it, which is good. The fact that somebody's actually saying they're going to go look at it and try to work with Congress about this mm-hmm. is the first step. I mean, they could start with their own income credit, I guess. That would be the easiest from, thing to start with. So let's talk about the PPP. The PPP. Paycheck Protection Program has been extended. The Senate passed an extension along with the House. The president signed it. And the new deadline is August 8th. There is still $130 billion in funding left. So hopefully folks will get it together in the month of July and and take advantage of that. We have some details from the SBA on what's happened so far. So far, we've had 4.8 million loans totaling $520.6 billion as of Tuesday night. 
and there are $669 billion allocated to the program. And what's left now is it 103? 130 billion. 130 billion still, still left. Uh, now, there, there's $130 billion left in the PPP. Uh, you want to take a gander at how much fraud there's been so far? The Government Accountability Office released a report saying that the PPP almost certainly fell victim to a significant amount of fraud. Now, they didn't say exactly how much, but Entrepreneur talked to the CEO of risk management firm Clearforce, who told them that his company estimates there's been over a billion dollars of verified criminal fraud within the PPP program. The Government Accountability Office, for its part, said in the report, Quote, because of the number of loans approved, the speed with which they were processed, and the limited safeguards, there is a significant risk that some fraudulent or inflated applications were approved, unquote. But, but th- there's no data. Like, what's the real number like from a percentages? Well, so right? let's, this is a lot of money that went out the door. Yeah. Let's say if it is a hundred million. <laughs> like, I think maybe that's acceptable. A lot of money, but in the big scheme of things, I think I agree with you, David. Not material. Or or and, worthwhile cost of doing business in order to get the money out. Like you said, you, you actually said at the beginning of this whole PPP program uh, that one of the lessons we learned from the last recession, the Great Recession, two thousand eight yeah. recession, yeah, the it was the, the Great Recession. I think they called that one. The lesson learned is they didn't get the money out fast enough. Right, is what they learned in that, and so. You have to you have to you have to take the risk that people you're gonna send checks to dead people. You're going to have businesses that apply for a loan that shouldn't have applied for it. You know, you mentioned the stimulus checks to dead people. So I just had to bring up this little tidbit from this week. Gene Dodaro, the Comptroller General of the US Government Accountability Office, the GAO, which is releasing all of these reports, the one we just talked about, he told a congressional panel on Friday that the IRS sent his mother a $1,200 payment this spring, even though she died in February of 2018. Doesn't look good for the IRS, right? <laughs> he, he should just file it, claim it in his taxes. He won't get audited. So he, he sent it back like he should, but he's worried that a lot of people will cash the checks and don't know that they should send them back. So that's all I've got this week. Yeah, I think the only other one is the uh, Billy Ann Grigg wrote up an article on Accounting Web about what should business owners do after they run out of PPP loan money. Mm. And so she has some tips in here on, on things they should do, like do an expense analysis, um, determine an income target, right? Build a multi-layer contingency plan, you know, build a strong cash cash position. But the whole time I'm reading this, I'm just kind of thinking, this is probably good if you have a brand new client that just came through your door and said, hey, I got the PPE loan on, I'm on my own and now I spent the whole thing. Now what do I do, right? If they're a brand new client. But if you've already had this client, and you help them get the loan. Like you should have done these things with that client ahead of time. Like waiting till the PPP money's out to build their cash flow and their their you know their their future plans just seems a little bit ridiculous. And it's not that the article is ridiculous. It's just that's what I was thinking when I was reading it was like, the, hopefully you've done this already. Well, yeah, I, I guess a lot of times this stuff doesn't happen until necessity, until it becomes necessary. Clients have to want it. And in the good times, it's hard to convince clients to pay for this kind of stuff because their business is working. Everything's working. And it's not until it breaks that, you know, they really need your help. And maybe at that time, the, the, their, their focus and eyes were just like, I just need that PPB money because, hey, COVID's going to be gone soon. Yeah. I've been watching the news and we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to reopen and I could just, this will get me by. And that's all the help I need with is just to get the loan. And right. So maybe they're coming back now and yeah. like, okay, great. I got the loan. It's gone. Now what do I do? 
So, uh, you know, to to take us out here, do you have any guess as to when this latest surge of virus will recede? We've we've talked about it in the past a bit, you know, um, and it's funny because like <sighs> July was like one of our estimates, and it's it hasn't even peaked here in Arizona yet. It's supposedly it's going to peak um, mid July. Is it because people are in these hot states, right? And you have to be indoors more and versus New York and back East where they had their spike before yep. was in the winter when they were all indoors. Is that the reason for the difference in the spikes or is it, Hey, New York and those places are down now because they, they got over this major spike. Like you almost yeah. have to get up and over that hump. I don't, I, I don't know at this point. I just know that um, I'm done. I, I'm starting to like, I'm starting to get fall into that bucket of, does this make a lot of sense You're, anymore? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the thing that's really challenging for both of us is we have kids at home. You know, I have a five-year-old. You've got a bunch of like preteens and teens, pre-teens. right? So, that's And the reality rough. of our kids not going back to school is here now. I think for the rest of the country, it is still eight to 12 weeks out before school starts, right? They're in the mid- their summer. A lot of schools just, just started summer vacation yeah. two weeks ago. I just... But, I, I, we're five weeks out, four weeks out from school and it already got delayed. And now it's got delayed into that, like, until we deem it safe, which could be two years. Right. It, it, there's just no knowing when this is going to stop. And kids are suffering. Like, not going to school is damaging children. There was a great op-ed in the New York Times about this. It's a blogger who uh, wrote this, who works at home, and her husband lost his job. And they're both at home with their son. And are trying to imagine a fall in which school doesn't open there in New York City. And New York City is one of those places that has said that the schools aren't going to open until it's safe. And it's challenging because it's creating an environment in which you can't work and have kids. You can't open the economy and not have daycare and not have school, right? It doesn't It doesn't work. You know, my wife and I are in that situation. We both work. We like working. One of us could afford now that we're in Arizona to not work, but we don't want to. And we're kind of being forced into that situation potentially in the fall. Inside of that, or we have to find somebody who can provide daycare or a place that can provide it, right? Basically, in COVID times, you have to choose, do you have a job or do you take care of your kids? Yeah. Because it's very hard to do both. You can't be half-assed both. And the worst part is, unfortunately, the option starting to become, I have to, to be a half-assed teacher to my kids because there's no option. They, they can't go to school. There's no. no option on the table. I found it. It's called, in the COVID-19 economy, you can have a kid or a job. You can't have both. New York Times, July 2nd by Deb Perlman. Imagine if you were actually were an accountant as well and you had to tax deadlines okay. on top of yeah, no, that. Yeah, it's hard enough just doing my normal job. Like, I can't imagine being on, um, you know, tax deadline and having kids at home and having to deal with all that. You know, you you and I, David, like we're we're relatively speaking very well off compared to most people in this country, and and I think most accountants, most CPAs, most EAs, like you know, hey, we're professionals. We're going to be okay. Let's let's say I'm a cop and I've got to go to work, and you know, what do I do with my kids? I got to have daycare. I guess there's actually daycares for the essential people. Those are open. Yes, but did you know what the observation of those daycare centers are? What the kids aren't getting sick. they're not getting sick they're not dying and so we have to we have to figure out what this balance is and and, and i'm going to say on the podcast i'll say it right Uh, all right i'm starting to wonder what's worse for kids 
them having a worst horrible year of lack of education for a year of their life or possibly losing their grandparents. Like what's worse? Because that's basically where we're at. It's very clear mm-hmm. the data is a, is a, it skews much higher to old people right. that are age 55, 65, 75. And, and it gets worse. Like every decade older, right. they, the, the death rates are way higher. What are we balancing out? The long-term impact to the youth of America or the youth of the world? I had to make a choice pretty early on in this whole thing about what were you going to do with my son? He's five years old and he is deaf and has cochlear implants. So, this is a critical point in his development where he needs to be talking with other kids so that he can learn language and catch up because he's behind, right? He didn't get these when he was born. He had to wait a year. So, he's already behind. He needs to be with other kids, talking to them, listening to them, interacting with them. And so, we moved from California to Arizona specifically because we knew that even if the public schools wouldn't be open in Arizona, that the political climate is such that at least private schools would be open or daycares would be open, which we have been able to find. And, and those are closed to you know, non-essential folks in California. So, we would have had to, you know, one of us quit our job and the other one you know, work and then try to homeschool him. But it's just terrible for him to be at home. Like it's going to create... If you have these kids home for longer than you know a year without interacting with other kids, it's going to really stunt their development. And then the online education is just atrocious. It doesn't work for young kids. Like It's hard enough for adults. <laughs> it's not effective. I think this lockdown stuff and kids not going to school, like this is the next four weeks is going to be really interesting because the um, unemployment, that extra 600 bucks is going away. Yeah. So, all of a sudden, people who are maybe staying at home because maybe the unemployment was there... And maybe it's not as stressful, right? You, you have that money coming in, you're able to pay your rent. But what happens? Like that money goes away. Now you can't pay your rent. You're stuck at home with your kids. And like there's just all these stresses, right? Like I think people are starting to get stressed out from this. And there's going to have to be a, a swing here in the pendulum somewhere. I don't know what it is, but we're and, – and maybe the real fear is just the hospitals and the volume and, and like we have to – you know, if somebody's in a car accident, now they, there's no beds for them. And I, I, I kind of get these things. But I also, at some level, like this is getting, you know, I, I, t- I, I have the guy down the street. Um, he's like 90 years old, lives by himself, you know, super independent. And literally, like has the strongest handshake of any person I've ever shook hands with my whole entire life. But I was talking to him yesterday morning and he's he said he hasn't touched a human being in 90 days. Like that's not healthy mentally for people either. No, so, I don't know. I, I don't have the answers, but I just, it feels like for me personally, I'm burning out like on this. Like I'm kind of like over it. Yeah. We, we need to figure out what the end game is of this because locking down forever is not a solution. And the, the, the cat's out of the bag, right? This infection has spread so much in this country that we can't, we can't stop it. I, I heard somebody saying that in order to get rid of it in Arizona at this point, we'd have to shut down for months. This is not going to happen. There's no way. It's impossible. So, do we live with it? Is that what ends up happening? We can mitigate it, right? As much as we can, wear masks, right? Masks work. If we all wear masks and we go back to school and work, then hopefully that works. I mean, you look at other countries like Japan and Korea, that's what they're doing. It's working. And they had masks kind of from day one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, it can it can be done. Unfortunately, we've just got this like totally screwed up system where this has all become really political. So, I don't, I don't know. I hope we can fix it. I feel you, David. Um, I'm, I'm burned out on this too. And 
I think, uh, I think everybody is. Um, you know, if you're feeling burned out, like, and you're listening to this, you are not alone. Give us a call. We'd love to hear, like, you know, what, what your take is. And I, and I want to, obviously, we just spent eight minutes not talking about anything <laughs> accounting related. But, but it is related, right? Because we're all, all of us, like it or not, are going through the same journey. Yeah. Like, this is not unique to you and I. No. Like, we're all dealing with this COVID thing. And it's, you know, we're now, what, 16, 17, 18 weeks in, 20 weeks in? I mean, and basically, the, we still have half this year to go. 2020, half the year to go still. And I think basically all accountants are going through the same thing right now, which is trying to work from home with everybody at home, with your kids at home, trying to homeschool them while you're at home. Even if you have a spouse that does it, it's being distracted because you're at home while they're at home. Not everybody gets to have an office. And even if you do have a home office, the kids come barging in, right? It's That's the big thing. And I think we're all going through that. And in the stress of not separating work from home, which is very, very hard right now. Very hard. Yeah. no... There's no division of you can't turn off. And so if you want to talk to us about that, if you want to vent or just tell us what you think or tell us we're wrong uh, or agree with us, leave us a message. We have a number set up. You can call it 202-695-1040. That is 202-695-1040. Call us, leave a voicemail. We'll listen and maybe we'll even play it on the air. Even better idea. Tell your kids to call. So that way you you can (laughs) at least get like an extra like three, four minutes of you know, getting some work yeah. done while, while they're calling us instead, leaving us uh, prank jokes or something. That could be uh, kind of funny. I, I did see uh, something that I, I really loved. I do not know who on Twitter this was from. It was uh, something about, hey, my five-year plan is just getting through 2020. And I thought <laughs> that is like perfectly like said in yeah. just a beautiful, perfect way right now. Well, David, stay safe, stay sane until the next time we talk. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Still sending spreadsheets of unclassified expenses to clients? With Client Hub, automate this process and get client answers instantly. Client Hub is a client communication platform that helps you consolidate client communication, securely share files, and instantly get answers and much, much more. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app and enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. Client Hub, frictionless client communication. Smancha integrates with QuickBooks Online and Zero to help put an end to cash flow problems by using daily, weekly, and monthly forecasts, cash flow calendars, and a powerful customized what-if scenarios. You can visualize your clients' finances in clear and intuitive ways, so you can take action and reshape their cash flow by getting them the funding with one simple application. It identifies when extra cash is needed and can match your clients with multiple financing options via more than 50 screen lenders, and you can advise on the best offer suited to your clients' needs. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo/smancha. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-M-A-N-S-H-A.